0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. Um, Larry was praying about our presbytery, we are part of a denomination here called the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, and they release a a magazine called By Faith, and um, we have those come here to the church so that you guys can take them home and read about what's going on in our denomination, so there's a, a small number of By Faith magazines, the latest edition that's there on the welcome table, welcome booth. And so you guys are welcome to to grab one of those on the way out if you're interested in learning more uh, about the PCA. Well, today we are um, doing something a little different for our sermon. Before we start the series next Sunday on 1 John, um, I'm going to be doing something that I'm calling the State of the Church Address 2018. Um, As the new year starts and as we look ahead to our annual meeting coming up at the end of the month... Uh, it seemed like um, a good thing for us to do to examine a little bit about where we've been and think about some of the positive things that we can affirm here as a congregation and to consider maybe some areas that need some improvement as well. So when I say church, I don't mean the church universal. I mean the the local church and I mean uh, New Life in particular. And um, I've gathered some input from the leaders here in the church and Um, with my own kind of observations, and based on the text of Scripture that we're about to read here, um, we're going to review how things have been and where things are going. And so this passage that we're looking at here is, again, from the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation, um, there is um, a description of seven different churches that Jesus comes to address. And so here's the Savior who came into this world and laid down His life to purchase and redeem and save these churches. He's resurrected from the dead, and now He's coming back to address how things are going uh, in these particular churches. So, I want you to see that what I'm about to do here today is is very biblical. Now, I'm not Jesus, so I can't assess a church quite like He can, but we can take some clues from uh, what we read here in this passage as uh, we think about our church, and where we're going. So there's a guy named Vern Poitras that uh, says this in his commentary on Revelation. According to God's point of view, not all churches are equally healthy. Their faithfulness or laziness or complacency or tolerance of false doctrine is important to him and makes a difference both in how they should respond and how they are judged. And so that applies certainly to, to new life. Uh, Not all churches are equally healthy, so it's a good thing for us to do to reflect and assess as best as we can our own health. So today we're going to be looking at just what the scripture here says about the church in a city called Ephesus. There's seven churches addressed, as I said, in chapters 2 and 3. We're not going to look at all seven churches, just the church in Ephesus, and God willing, I think what I might do is just kind of do this the first Sunday of every year, Uh, for the next seven years, taking a different church in chapters two and three, um, and taking some clues as we review where we've been and where we're going. So this is a seven-year sermon series, I guess. Um, One sermon a year for the next seven years in this particular um, series. So uh, we'll look and see what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus here today, and then I'm going to consider something uh, that would be by way of encouragement, and then something by way of exhortation. Uh, to us as a local congregation. So Revelation 2, 1 through 7, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, Again, this is written to this city called Ephesus, a very major commercial center at the time, a a large city, something like maybe a New York City kind of place at the time, uh, located in what is modern-day Turkey. And Acts 19 and 20, you can read about a Paul and his missionary endeavors there in Ephesus. He came, he preached the gospel, he planted a church in Ephesus. And these words that we read in these seven verses are to that church. So here's what it says, starting with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we need your spirit to understand it. So bless this preacher and bless these people as we listen to what you have to say to us through this scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, Revelation, if there's one thing you know about it, it's that it can be a a confusing book and a hard book to understand, a a book that is filled with a lot of symbolism. I think it'll probably be a long time before I'm willing to go through the book of Revelation. Um, And as this passage begins, we immediately see something that kind of uh, confuses us a little bit. Verse 1 to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So already we're asking this question well, who is this angel? And uh, looking at uh, the commentators, there's all sorts of different opinions about this. Some say the angel might have been the messenger that was sent to the churches to deliver uh, these words. Some say it might be a bishop or a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Others say, you know, maybe we shouldn't see this as symbolic, and maybe it really is talking about an angel, but that raises questions about how do you write a letter to an angel, And why would someone choose an angel to deliver a letter to a church? So there's all sorts of questions that are raised about various uh, interpretations of who the angel is. I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't know who the angel is. Uh, A lot of disagreement um, and differences of opinion. But here's one thing we can be sure of as we read these words. And that is this, that there is a very strong... Uh, centrality placed on the role of the local church in the New Testament. Because you'll notice here that all of these letters, we're not going to again read all through chapter 2 and 3, but they're all written to specific local congregations. These are not letters to the church universal. These are letters written to congregations like this one gathered on Sunday mornings worshiping Jesus So there's an implication here that there's an expectation in the New Testament that Christians are involved in local churches. and God places a high value on that, and we see that here in these two chapters. So what does Jesus say then to this particular local church in Ephesus? So two things we're going to look at today. There's going to be some affirmation to the church and then a warning to the church. Let's consider the affirmation first. Jesus' affirmation... the church. What does he say? Verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. So Jesus is noticing that this is um, a church that perseveres. These are people who don't give up easily. They hang in. They're very very patient. But what in particular is the context here of their patience and their perseverance? Well, we move on through verse 2. And it says, that they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So apparently in the church in Ephesus, there were these teachers inside the church. They were claiming to be apostles. Now apostles were those who were closest to Jesus, those charged by Jesus with preserving the gospel and then communicating it to the churches set aside as authoritative representatives of Jesus to preach the gospel. In Ephesus, there's these people, they're saying, we're apostles. And the church there in Ephesus was listening to them. And as they heard these people teach, they started to notice things that didn't quite sound right. And they noticed some doctrinal things that sounded wrong than what the other apostles had said. And apparently, in some way, these teachers were called out it says they were found to be false. So the false doctrine was recognized and in some way, apparently, these uh, uh, false teachers were, were, were called out for what they were teaching. Now we learn more about this in verse six. It says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now later on uh, in chapter two, um, verse 15, it mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So it seems like it was the Nicolaitans who were the false teachers. Now, we, we don't know much about this group, the, the Nicolaitans. Uh, there just isn't much available to us. So we don't know exactly what it was they were teaching. Um, in Acts chapter 6, you might remember that passage where deacons were being set aside uh, to serve those who were needy in the church, and it lists uh, the names of the deacons. And one of the names is Nicholas. And some people say that this, the Nicolaitans might be followers of Nicholas, that Nicholas himself was set apart as a leader of the church but then went astray and began teaching false doctrine and calling himself an apostle and gathering followers among him. That, that's a theory. It's not necess- We don't know that that's true, but it's possible. But one thing that's for sure is that we see that this false teaching is rising up from within the church. And that's the alarming thing about false teaching, is that it generally doesn't come from outside the church, it comes from within. And I mentioned that Paul preached in Ephesus, Acts 19 and 20, and this is exactly what Paul said was going to happen in Acts 20. This is his sermon to the elders in Ephesus as Paul was about ready to leave. And he says this to the elders. He says, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From within the church, this false doctrine is going to spring up. And what Jesus says is, I commend you church in Ephesus, because you were not duped by this false teaching. You didn't just obey whatever these people said. You were thinking doctrinally, and you recognized their error, and you called them out. And so this is the affirmation, just bottom line, very simple. Sound doctrine in the church in Ephesus. Jesus is pleased with that, and he affirms the church for this fact. Now, Let's kind of turn this. How do we apply this to New Life Presbyterian, the church in Yorktown, by by way of encouragement? Um, We happen to be part of a tradition, um, a denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America, as I mentioned. Um, We are part of what's called a Reformed Presbyterian tradition. And um, we have a reputation for being a tradition that emphasizes strong doctrine. I mean, it's something that, that we value. It doesn't mean that we get everything right, but it's something that we emphasize strongly. And the way the teaching goes forth and the way pastors are trained and ordained, um, we love sound doctrine. And, and that's, that's an important thing. I mean, if you look at verse 6, look what Jesus says. This um, you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I mean, how often do we think of Jesus Christ hating something? Not very often. Now, notice he doesn't say he hates the Nicolaitans. He doesn't say he hates the people. He hates their works, and their works is false teaching. Jesus hates false teaching. And that's kind of a a thing that's hard to hear maybe in this particular day and age where Uh, tolerance is emphasized so greatly, and people can be very slow to want to say that anything is wrong. I came across last night a, a new term. It's called dignitary harm. It's a legal term that says that it's basically wrong to tell anybody they're wrong because it might hurt them. Dignitary harm. That you violate a person's dignity when you tell them there's something wrong. They're, they're engaged in some immorality or they're holding to some false teaching. And there are some that are very concerned about how that's going to be applied you know, to the church in the future. But here's Jesus saying, I hate false teaching. And so that's something that every church should value. That's something that, that we should value. And so, you know, I, I want to say this about you guys, is that, that you are very attentive listeners to the Word of God. I mean, I'm looking out right now and I think I see every single head up and looking and listening. Now maybe some minds are wandering right now a little bit. It's kind of easy to look like you're paying attention sometimes, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are, but I think you guys are a very attentive congregation. And from a preacher's perspective, that's just very encouraging to be able to bring the Word and believe that, that you're doing your best. After a long, hard week, Many of you tired and sleepy, and yet you're doing what you can to pay attention because that tells me that you value sound doctrine also. And that's probably one of the reasons why you're at this church, because you know we come from a tradition that values that. There's a, <clears throat> a pastor in our presbytery named Roger Williams who is pastor in Indianapolis. He was a guest preacher here once many years ago when we were in the old sanctuary, and I think I was away for vacation, and afterward Roger said to me, he says, you know what? You have a very attentive congregation. So that's someone coming in from the outside recognizing that. And I said, Roger, yeah, I mean, I I know that. And it's a a blessing to preach to a congregation like that. Now, by way of exhortation, I I would say this, that that you're attentive when you're here. (laughs) In order to receive sound doctrine and receive sound teaching, you you need to be here on Sunday mornings, and there are some pockets of the congregation where attendance is fairly sporadic. Now, I understand, fully understand, there's sicknesses that enter a family, there's work schedules, there's travel schedules, there's a number of things that sometimes get in the way of our attending church. Um, and I know that there's questions raised about whether church attendance is, is really necessary, and some people will say, well, in order to be a Christian, do I have to go to church? Well, my response to that uh, is often this. In order to be married, do you have to go home? I mean, there's a sense in which you could say No right? I mean, (laughs) I can be married to a person and never go home, but what kind of marriage are you going to have if you're never with your spouse? And how can your spiritual life have any vibrancy or health to it if you're never with God's people, if you're not with the people that Jesus has been sent to lay down his life for and purchase and redeem and bring you into that family? Remember Jesus, Luke chapter 2 Jesus is with his mom and dad, and they take him to the temple, and they leave him there. And uh, they, they leave, and they forget that he's there. Do you remember that? And they're away for like a day or so, and then they remember that they forgot their son, Jesus, and he's, I don't know, 10, 12 years old at that time. And so they turn around, and they go back to the temple, and they find Jesus. He's still in the temple. And Mary and Joseph say, you know, Jesus, don't you know how distressed we are about the fact that we couldn't find you? And here's what Jesus says, mom, dad, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's where I got to be. Now, if that was true of Jesus, how much is that true for you and for me? So, My my challenge to you is just, again, knowing that we have busy schedules and things happen. I understand that. But my challenge is this. Review your schedule. Review the way you plan your weekends. And do some reflection on what you can do to make Sunday morning worship a greater priority. Do that as you think about 2018 and your spiritual growth in the coming year. Christ's affirmation to the church in Ephesus, a church of sound doctrine. How about the warning? Christ's warning to the church in Ephesus. Well, here's what we find. And and this is a frequent occurrence in churches that tend to value doctrine. Here's what often happens. I've seen it many times, and maybe you have too, that when a church gets really serious about dotting the I and crossing the T on every doctrinal point, a certain attitude of suspicion begins to creep in, a certain attitude of judgmentalism sometimes, uh, kind of a critical spirit, you know, just kind of looking around for who might not be as doctrinally sound as I am. And what comes with that is a corresponding drying up of any love that a person has for his brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't see that in this congregation. I don't see that happening with regard to doctrine. And it doesn't have to be this way. It's not that a commitment to doctrine leads to a lack of love necessarily. But it does happen. And I've seen it happen. And that's what apparently happened in Ephesus. Look at verse 4. They're a doctrinally sound church, but Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. What Jesus is basically saying is, it doesn't matter how doctrinally sound you are if you don't love each other. If love is not present in the congregation, I I don't care how many doctrines you can articulate and define for me, and I don't care how much you know about your Bible, because if love isn't present, it's all for nothing. First Corinthians 13 says this, if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. It comes to nothing. So this is what Jesus is pointing out in this church in Ephesus. There's, there's a, there, what, the love that they had at the beginning when the church started or at some point, it, it isn't there anymore. And the warning that Jesus offers to them is very serious. Look what he says in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the works you did at first. Go back to the way it was. Go back to the love that you had when you first became a Christian and when you first joined the church. But if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'll remove your lampstand. Now, what does that mean? We we see at the very end of chapter 1... I mean, some things in Revelation are hard. Some things are actually easy. Look at the end of chapter 1, the last verse. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. Clear. That's what the lampstand refers to. It refers to the church. So what Jesus is saying is, if you don't repent of your lack of love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. That is, I'm I'm going to displace you as a church. I'm going to remove your status as a church. I'm going to cause you as a church to cease to exist because I don't want churches that aren't filled with love. He's not saying, I'm going to revoke your salvation. This isn't a message to individuals. It's not saying if you're a Christian and your sins have been forgiven and you have eternal life that I'm going to revoke that and send you to hell now because you haven't repented. That's not what he's saying. It's a message to a congregation that has a status as a church. And the threat is, if you don't repent, I'm going to change that. Now, what's really interesting is Um, there actually today is no church in Ephesus. And and the reason why is because there's no city of Ephesus. (laughs) Uh, A lot of things happened over the years, and there's just ruins there uh, in, 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 in Ephesus. And so without the city there, there's certainly not the church there. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily a fulfillment of what Jesus is saying here, but nonetheless, that's the case. And you know, Jesus is for his church, as Eric has told us so well. He is for us, but along with that, he is against false churches. And he delights to bring them down. And so, what is the warning here? Bottom line, love has been lost. The love in the church has been lost. Now, we might ask, like, what, what does that mean? What kind of love? I mean, it could be love for God and the gospel. It could be love for uh, one another in the church. It could be love for those outside the church, and I think it's probably all three, probably a combination of all three. So let me offer then some encouragement to you in this regard. So the first thing that occurred to me as I thought about the way this church loves, and we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit, is um, your generous giving patterns in the year 2017. Um, We'll learn more about this at the annual meeting last Monday of this month. But um, we have at least 35 less people in this congregation than we did a year ago because we sent 35 out for our church plant, City Hope Fellowship in downtown Muncie. So we have less people here. 2016, we were under budget. We didn't make budget. But in 2017, we were significantly above budget and with less people worshiping and participating in the life of our congregation. And so that is just something to be highly commended. You know, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That is, your heart or your, your, your giving patterns, your commitments tend to follow where your heart is. And so if you're giving to the church, what that indicates is you love the church, you love your brothers and sisters, and you love the gospel, and you love the kingdom of God. A generous church is a loving church. Now, certainly it's possible to give and not be loving, but in most cases it's an indication. If you, you're not going to give to what you don't love. And if you're not giving to the church and you're not giving to Jesus, it raises questions about where your affections are and how much you really love God and the church. So um, your giving patterns ha- have been commendable, and it shows your love. And that's a great encouragement to all of you. By way of exhortation, um, we can think of this two ways. Loving those inside the church and loving those outside the church. Just think of that in this way. Loving those inside the church. How are we doing in terms of our love for one another? And um, here's a way that I know we can demonstrate tangible love toward one another. And it's through the discipline of hospitality. Um, I I know that we are a friendly church. I really think that's true. There's a difference between being a friendly church and being a hospitable church. Those are two different things. Being a hospitable church is being a church of people who welcome others into their homes. Do you know what the word hospitality actually is a combination of two Greek words, love and stranger? Stranger. What hospitality actually means is loving strangers, so having your friends over is a good thing, but really the essence of the term is having people over you don't know. (laughs) And so, I'm not saying we're not a hospitable church, I just want us to reflect on that. Are we a hospitable church? I mean, I, I don't know all that goes on in all your lives throughout the week, but here's one thing I do know, is that people will stay in churches where they feel loved and accepted and connected People will stay in churches where their friends are. I mean, they'll tolerate bad sermons. They'll they'll tolerate a lot of things they might not like, but, man, if their friends are there, they're going to be connected to that place. And so as a congregation, I want to encourage you to be thinking in 2018 about who you can reach out to and invite into your homes, particular people who are new to the congregation. Um, You know, occasionally I'll I'll be out in the foyer and I'll see a a new person and they'll be standing over there by themselves for a long time. (laughs) That should not happen. Reach out to the new people in our church. Reach out to one another that the world will know that we love one another. But how about loving those outside the church? How do we show that love? Well, we can do that in a lot of ways, but I would suggest to you that the best way to show love to those outside the church is to share the gospel with them. That's the most important thing anybody can know. It's the best way that you can love your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends. Share the gospel with them. Now, I know that makes a lot of people nervous and your palms are getting a little sweaty now, and oh, he's gonna put the guilt trip on me and make me go out and share my faith and knock on doors and tell people about Jesus let me rephrase this for you. Don't think of evangelism as merely a one-on-one personal thing that you have to do by yourself. Don't don't think of it that way. It can happen that way, but think of it more as something that you're doing within the context of the church. This is a community project that we do. We do this together. You, You don't have to be out there on your own. You have elders and deacons and brothers and sisters and pastors in this place to help you reach the people who are on your heart to share the gospel with. One of the ways that people come to know the gospel and come to see Jesus as appealing is when they come into the community of faith and see the way Christians love one another and are demonstrating what they believe in. But people can't see that if they are not invited to come. Invite people to church. That's an important task of evangelism and what I want to exhort and challenge you all to think about in 2018. Who can you invite to come here on a Sunday morning? And you can tell them, you can assure them look, they're not going to make you wear a name tag, they're not going to have you stand up, we're not going to introduce you in front of everybody, we're not going to Make you walk the aisle at the end of the service. None of that's going to happen. Whatever else you might think of that would dispel any misconceptions they may have, then do that. But invite them to come. And if if you're thinking to yourself, you know, I would invite so-and-so to church, but I'm not going to as long as blank is happening at that church. If that's what you're thinking, I want to tell you, I want to know what that is. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you think is a hindrance to bringing people along with you, particularly those outside the church, would you share that with me? And it's okay. My feelings aren't going to be hurt, you know? If it's that pastor, if that's the problem, come and let me know. Can you communicate with me? And let me know so that we can think more carefully about how to make this a place that is open and safe for those outside the church to come in. Wesley Newbigin, who's a British theologian, said this, How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. That's what makes the gospel credible. But people can't see that unless they're here. So those are my encouragements and exhortations to you as we head into the year 2018. Um, you know, I don't say this enough probably, but I, I want to make sure that you know that it is a privilege to be your pastor. Um, I love serving you and being your pastor And at this stage in my life, I don't wanna do anything else. Uh, It is a privilege and an honor to be here and to serve you. And uh, thank you for being a congregation that is a pleasure to serve. But more important for you to know is that Jesus is committed to you. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus considers it a delight to be your shepherd. That Jesus will be faithful to all of his commitments to you that he gave his life for you and he wants you to be his people he doesn't do it because he has to he does it because he delights to he loves you he will finish the work that he started in you and he who called you is faithful and he will do it so let's remember that as we serve him in 2018 God in heaven thank you for your word Lord would you help us as a congregation to follow wherever you lead uh, Father, awaken us to those areas in which we might need to repent, and Lord, give us the grace to continue to do what is pleasing and honoring to you. And use us for your glory and for your kingdom's sake, in Jesus' name.